Welcome to the ERB podcast, where we love to talk about books. At the ERB, we believe that life and faith is nurtured by the habit of reading. We've invited a diversity of writers, thinkers, and leaders to talk with us about the books they're reading, because reading matters, and so do great conversations. See, Christopher Smith is the founding editor of the Englewood Review of Books. Joel Wentz is our producer, and I'm your host, Jen Pollock-Michelle. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to uh, the Englewood Review of Books podcast. Uh, this is Joel, the producer and occasional host of the show. I'm taking over after our long string of live from Urbana conversations, which were finally caught up on and edited and uploaded. When Chris and Jen told me they recorded 11 conversations at that uh, at that conference, I was slightly overwhelmed, but we're all caught up now. We're getting back to some of our live conversations um, in an ongoing nature with some of our reviewers today. And I'm sitting here excited to meet and sit virtually with uh, Amy and Eric. I'm going to introduce them now and then we'll get into com- some conversation about what they've been reading lately and what they've especially been writing about for the, for the website. Um, so first, I have Amy Merrick, who is a senior professional lecturer in journalism at DePaul University in Chicago. Uh, she's dialing in from the Chicago area. She's also a freelance writer and editor and, of course, a contributor to Englewood. So thank you, Amy, for being here. Thanks for having me. Of course. Glad to. Uh, secondly, I'm also with Eric Danielson. Um, who is the arts and entertainment editor at the Columbia Daily Tribune. He's also an instructor at the University of Missouri School of Journalism, and he writes a weekly column called The Discontent for Fathom Magazine, which you can check out. And we'll try to link to all this stuff in our show notes as well. Um, and also, of course, he's a contributor to Englewood Review of Books. So thank you, Eric. Yeah, good to be here. Thanks. I'm excited to talk to you both. Um, we're just going to jump right in. So, uh, Amy, I want to start with you because you um, recently uh, wrote a review of the new uh, MLK biography, which is called King, A Life by Jonathan Eig. I think I'm saying that right. Um, and uh, yeah, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about about how you approach a book like that, someone that is so such a prominent public figure and has had so much written about him. How do you, I mean, I guess... As you're reading a book like that for a review, how do you even kind of enter it? What posture do you go go with reading a book like that? Yeah, so Jonathan Eig was a colleague of mine at the Wall Street Journal about 20 years ago, and we've kept in touch since. So oh, awesome. I was really interested in, as a, as a writer, how he was approaching such a huge subject. And I was particularly interested in reviewing King for Englewood because of something John said actually at the end of the book which was that he was drawn to this story from a conversation with Dick Gregory, the comedian and activist, who was making the case comparing King to Jesus. And I was really interested in how that idea would be developed in the book. So as I was reading, I was really focusing on the ways that King was drawing on his Christian faith and his studies and how he really felt compelled to continue in the civil rights movement, even though he was afraid often uncertain, even though he had premonitions of his own murder, Mm. because he felt that he had to live out the example of Jesus. He said explicitly that he'd been called by God. And I agree with John, who says that he wanted to humanize King, because when you see his flaws, just like we all have our own flaws, it really makes what he did even more remarkable because he felt all those natural human fears, and yet he went forward anyway. And so I was most interested in that angle. And maybe also because I'm the parent of a small child, I was also interested in how King was shaped by his family, how he grew up in his father's church, but also wanted to establish his independence. 
And I think John covers King's early life more thoroughly than other biographies. And that was another element that stood out to me since most books understandably focus on his adult life and the civil rights movement. Oh, wow. That's, that's really helpful is, um, uh, would, I mean, how would you say, what kind of weight does I give to the theological formation, spiritual formation, like the the more explicitly religious Christian elements of King's life and story? Like, I, fi- I guess the reason I'm asking that is because sometimes that can be a, I find that can be a fraught part of conversations about King and civil rights. And there's a lot of debates about how much to talk about the spiritual side and the religious side of all that. And uh, I'm just, yeah, I don't know. I'm curious how, how, how did you find I weighted that or focused on that? Was that um, a prominent part of the biography? Was it more prominent than other biographers or what, what's your kind of evaluation of that part? I think in this case, the spiritual and religious themes are really threaded throughout the book. And you often see when King is facing a difficult decision, what he's drawing on. Mm. I does spend a lot of time on his education. Of course, he was educated in his father's Baptist church in Atlanta, and then also his studies at Morehouse and then at seminary and then his doctorate at Boston University. So especially early in the book, he's really talking about how King is thinking about sort of what is the way forward to fight oppression and how do you base that in theology? Hmm. And so um, he was really drawn to what Reinhold Niebuhr was saying uh, about um, really how to, how to um, use nonviolent resistance as a moral force. Yeah, And from Niebuhr, he came to Gandhi and then really became convinced that as a Christian, that nonviolent resistance was the way to bring people to freedom. And so that Mm. is really developed in the book that you then see later when King is facing different decisions, that he is always going back to this theological foundation and saying that as a Christian, this nonviolent resistance really needs to continue to be the way forward for him. Mm. That's fascinating. would you say stylistically is this biography more on the approachable end, more on the academic end? How does it, uh, I don't know, how how would you place it kind of in that spectrum? It's definitely more on the approachable end. It's mm. a very thorough book. I mm-hmm. think it's more than 600 pages. When I was going to say it's pretty long, right? Yeah. It's together. yeah. <laughs> uh, but because I has this training as a journalist and a newspaper journalist, he's really thinking about how do you keep things moving? And how is he always kind of tying things back to the main theme? So anytime you're reading about what's going on more broadly in America, other parts of history, it's always kind of tying back to what is the effect on King's life? How is it shaping his decisions? And he also really Hmm. uses the cadences of King's beautiful speeches to his advantage. So the book is very rhythmic. The writing is very beautiful. And he really kind of has this sense of pace. And so even though it's a thick book, you are always feel like you're kind of propelled forward. And even though you know what's going to happen, you really want to see yeah. how it unfolds from this perspective. Oh man. Well, it sounds quite good. And I believe in your review, you mentioned, um, doesn't he pivot to tell some anecdotes from other people's perspectives in like certain chapters of King's life? Am I remembering that correctly? Yes. Particularly when he gets to the March on Washington and the famous, I have a dream speech. Oh yeah, He tells that part of the story from the point of view of two people who were there that day. And one is 
a Black teenager from Chicago who came with her best friend. And the other is actually a white park ranger who was assigned to security and so was on the stage with him. And so he tells the stories from their perspective. One of the things that makes John's book so rich is that he interviewed about 200 people for the book. So he has so many experiences and perspectives to draw on. Hmm. Oh, wow. That sounds excellent. Um, I've read, I've read a handful of different biographies on King that focus on different aspects of his life. And of course I, Taylor Branch's books are, you know, the massive kind of doorstoppers. Um, but this one sounds, I have to admit when I heard that it was coming out, I was like, oh man, another one, you know, like uh, another book, but, but the more I've learned about it, and even hearing you talk about it, the more I am interested in maybe diving back into uh, a life that I feel like I've already read a good bit about, which is saying something, you know, that's, that sounds like uh, John Igg is contributing something new, um, which is awesome. Um, so Eric, before I pivot to your, what you reviewed, I'm curious if you have any experience reading uh, King's work, either sermons or biographies on him, or if this is sparking any reaction or questions on your end. Yeah, no, I haven't read extensively um, the biographies. I do own one of Branch's biographies, which I really enjoyed. And I got about halfway through and I I don't know if y'all ever do this, but I made the mistake of setting it aside for a moment, thinking I would pick yes. it up, and I I haven't. Yeah, uh, but um, but I yeah, I've read a few of King's um, own works. I uh, gosh, maybe fifteen years ago now, I picked mm. up Strength to Love, and it was really influential on me at the time, and and really I feel like was really formative. Um, and then we have a nine year old who's really interested in history, so we are actually he he um, is really drawn to the life story of Dr. King. So we um, mm. kind of raided our local library of kind of all the like age appropriate biographies uh, for kids. So cool. I feel like we're, we're kind of um, immersed in his, uh, his legacy regularly, but um, it's not necessarily direct, uh, you know, like biographical yeah. that I'm doing on my part. So, yeah. yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I've, I've read at least one four kids style biography to my oldest son of MLK. It's really fun to enter it through a child's child's eyes kind of brings a freshness to it. Um, Wonderful. Well, Eric, uh, let me pivot over to you now. Uh, I'd like to ask you about what you recently reviewed, which was a collection of poetry um, by Drew Jackson, uh, who is someone I um, honestly was not familiar with before uh, learning about this collection, which is called Touch the Earth. Um, So I, I had to chuckle a little bit because in your review, you acknowledge those of us who don't read poetry. And I've seen even said on the podcast a few times, I am one of those people. I've tried a couple of times and for some reason, I just tend to bounce off of it. So I would love for you to convince me and all of the surrogate, you know, the people I'm a surrogate for in the audience right now uh, who haven't, haven't just connected with poetry yet, convince me to, uh, to read uh, Drew Jackson's poems, which do sound good, by the way. Yeah, yeah, Drew's work is, is excellent, and I think a really great entry point into poetry. Mm. That's not something that you are predisposed to. I, I really consider myself kind of a late bloomer when it comes to poetry. Um, I mean, like everybody, I read the assigned poems, you know, in high school, and yeah. uh, distinctly remember uh, the only thing I actually remember about reading poems in high school is that we got to William Carlos Williams, and we all thought that was really funny that his name was basically like a book bookend. <laughs> Um, so one of my friends called him Bill Carlos Bill uh, during the semester. But I think, you know, I don't know. I think it really depends on how people are taught poetry. Um, I think so many of us encounter it for the first time in junior high or high school. And it feels, I think it's something maybe about that time in our lives or just the way that the work is presented kind of in a textbook form. It feels distant um, yeah. a lot of the times. It feels like it doesn't necessarily apply to us or to what we're going through. Um 
And it really honestly took me into well into adulthood to, to not only appreciate the lyricism in so much poetry, but also just the interiority of it and how it's really, I mean, all good writing does this to some degree, but how it's putting language to things that we really can't express. And, it, and, it, and in so many ways feels like the best approximation um, in words that we can find for, for some of the interior mm. desires and fears and, and hopes that we experience. Um, but what I really think makes Drew's work a great place to start for people is it's not only just absolutely beautiful and soulful and, and the language is um, you know, easy to enter into, but he's writing about so many things that, that you see the relevance of immediately. Um, he, hmm. whether it's through references in the text or, or through epigraphs, um, he you know, puts his own stuff in conversation with thinkers like Langston Hughes and Abraham Lincoln, Dr. King, um, but also really modern figures like Tupac Shakur and hmm. um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, people like that. And so you see his work as kind of this part of this conversation that we're all, if we don't feel like we're a part of it, we're at least eavesdropping on it regularly, you know, through our media consumption and, and what we're mm-hmm. reading. Um, but Drew also really writes beautifully about, and, and sometimes very painfully about, injustice in our country, um, about, you know, um, the desire for community, um, around us about blackness, about music, about all these things that I think people are already thinking about on a daily basis and, and have Mm -hmm. some interest in. And so I really feel like his work here can be a pull, um, into, Mm -hmm. you know, a a conversation that's already happening in in a new way. Um, and in that intro, I'll just say too, I, I mentioned a lot of this, really the entire book is him writing poems kind of in response to different passages from the book of Luke. And I think it's really easy sometimes too, for, um, people who, you know, maybe struggling spiritually, or just are not avid Bible readers to again say, what, well, what does this have to do with me? What does what does this ancient text have to do with my life? And I think that pairing of Drew's poetry um, and the scripture really reinforces that that both are necessary. <laughs> you know that yeah. both the scripture and poetry have something to say to us today, um, and we don't have to fear what we might perceive as like the formality of it or the distance of it. Um, but it's something that we can enter into, and once we kind of adjust ourselves. Um, to its voice and to its language, we, we really begin to see our own place in it. Yeah. Wow. That sounds really good. Uh, something I'm really curious about. So as someone who, uh, like I said, I'm very kind of barely in touch with the world of poetry and I've certainly never reviewed a book of poetry. I've written a lot of reviews for nonfiction. Um, honestly, how I would love to just hear, how do you approach reviewing a collection of poems you know it seems like it would it kind of feels like it pushes on that art craft distinction a little bit you know I feel like when I'm reviewing nonfiction, I can think of it as evaluating a craft um you know in a way if that makes sense so I, I would just love to hear how you how do you personally think about reviewing something like like that book yeah so I mean thankfully at this point there's there's a lot of uh, I have a lot of reps as far as reading poetry yeah, yeah. And writing about it but like coming into it and and having been someone who's not you know, um, trained in poetry, trained in form, those sorts of things. It was a little bit intimidating. And, and it's honestly much like um, in my my day job, I cover the arts in a college town here in the Midwest. Mm. And I, I'm not a painter. I'm not a sculptor. I've never done those things. I don't understand the theory behind it. And I, it really just has taken time on both, both ends of that and listening to the people who do it and hearing them explain what they're doing and, and just kind of trying to be attuned to that. Um, 
But when it comes to reviewing poetry, I mean, I think voice is is so important. I think you really have hmm. to tell yourself, I am, I want to identify and tune to the voice of the poet as soon as I possibly can. And for some poets, that's a little bit harder to do. Um, I would say with Drew Jackson's work, you immediately kind of meet him on the page and have hmm. this sense of who he is. And so that um, certainly made my job easier. Um, but I think that poetry, maybe this is something that, that makes it hard for people to get into me if they don't understand this, but, but my philosophy is that poetry is meant to leave an impression on us. Um, and I think there's certainly, I mean, poets are as precise, maybe more than any other writer with their language, there's precision there and there's intent, but ultimately I would, I would argue, I haven't asked any, <laughs> any poets, but like, you know, uh, yeah, sure. Poetry is, is great to memorize, but I don't think most poets want us to memorize their work as much as they want us to absorb it and, and be impressed upon. Mm. And so I really try to let the this is going to sound high-minded, but like, I really try to let the work make its impression on me. Yeah. Um, you know, what, what feelings am I feeling taking note of that as I'm reading? Um, what visual kind of pictures is it evoking taking note of that and really trying to make whatever review I write consonant with that. You know, if I felt mm. a certain way throughout the book, I want to bring that tone um, to the review. Um, and so, you know, beyond that, I'm, I'm looking for themes, obviously to connect to each other. I'm looking for, illusions I'm looking for, you know, especially like in Drew's work, there's so many political and pop cultural references. So you're trying to build a context around the work. Yeah. You yeah. kind of, again, what it's in conversation with, what world is this poetry living in? Um, but I'm, yeah, I'm just always looking kind of for these, these soul impressions and these things that kind of unlock the text a little bit um, and unlock something maybe in me. Um, and hmm. one, th one other thing I'll say, uh, in my reviews, I tend to do this. I don't remember if I did that, this and this one, but um, I also just kind of look for like little lines that feel like standalones to me. Like every every line in a poem is in relationship to the whole poem. But sometimes I feel like you can take almost these little proverbs out of a poem, you know, and say like, if I just remembered this line, my life would be <laughs> a little bit better. Um, and so looking for those lines yeah. and then begin beginning to kind of record and sense my own reaction to them um, hmm. and letting those lines kind of maybe reach out to the viewer or the reader who doesn't um, have a context of what the whole book is. So yeah, um, those are some things I think about. I mean, there's, there's, I'm sure other things as well, but. No, that's good. I, it's funny. Uh, you know, I could have maybe predicted this if I'd stopped and thought for a minute about it before I even asking, but it's funny that as you articulate that, what strikes me is that it's not that different of an approach from reviewing pretty much any book. <laughs> uh, but like, you know, um, we, I, I tend to, maybe because of my relative unfamiliarity with it, I tend to put poetry in this utterly different category, but it's really not. It's it's writing, it's language, it's, you know, um, cra the craft of words. And uh, what I'm thinking of is, is a comment um, that actually the the typical host, Jen Pollock-Michelle of this podcast, that she, she made a comment once that just a review is just your reaction. You know, yeah. you're just, you're just capturing your reaction to the work. And uh, it was such a helpful in its simplicity summary of what actually the craft of reviewing a book is that it's just, just stuck with me ever since. And it's essentially, essentially that's what you just articulated. It's just like, I'm trying to take careful stock of my reaction to this work of this person and then capture that in a written response, um, which is what we're all trying to do. <laughs> so uh, it is, it's funny. And I think, yeah, I think it just depends, I think, maybe somewhat on our familiarity. Like, yeah. you know, I think with poetry and there's certainly there's beautiful formal poetry out there where, you know, the, the syllables matter and the lines matter and it's, it's, it's hewing to a historic form, you know, but most modern mm. poetry isn't doing that. And I think that 
unfortunately, so often we see poetry as like this problem to solve um, mm-hmm. rather than, you know, something to be immersed in. And, and probably, honestly, if I read some really technical theological text or, you know, historical text, I would probably feel that way about that. Like I have to solve this and I have to know what this is and I have to come in with all this knowledge. But I think most poets, again, I don't want to speak for poets, but like kind of like musicians, they want you to feel something. They want you to have an embodied emotional experience, you know? And I think maybe that's something beautiful that poetry has done for me is it's it's kind of caused me to slow down and track that a little bit more. Hmm. And I don't want to do that to the point that I, you know, explain the experience and lose any, you know, kind of yeah. uh, sacredness or mystery to it. But like, I, we so rarely pause long enough to take note of how is this piece of art affecting me? Um, I think poetry has done that for me to some degree. It, it's kind oh. of made me slow down and, and kind of catch my own breath and, and notice some things. And so, I mean, that would be my encouragement to people who are are struggling to get into poetry is to really just take time, go slow, you know, read up, read up, read a specific poem that that you feel like it's saying something to you, but you're not sure what it's saying. Read it a few times and just kind of know, like, how do I feel in this moment? Or, or what, what other, you know, it could even be something like a movie or a TV show. Like, what is it making me think of? Like, what's the immediate association that I'm making? And then, you know, start to try to like connect the dots. And I think that's a really fun um, exercise to kind of help us see like, yeah, what, you know, what we're reading and what it means to us. Oh, that's, that's good. That's really well said. Um, Amy, let me ask you, what's your, what's your experience with poetry? Are you uh, a novice like me or are you well-versed in it or kind of, yeah, what's your background there? Probably somewhere in between. And Mm -hmm. I love what Eric said about it being an embodied emotional experience, reading poetry that resonated with me. I felt like it, it captured that so well. And for people who don't read a lot of poetry, I hope that encourages Mm -hmm people to want to have those kinds of experiences. I have a friend who's a poet and he said something that stuck with me that for him, good writing is when you feel like you're getting a letter from a friend, Mm -hmm. whatever the form of that writing is, where you feel like you have a voice that wants that wants to know you, wants to be in relationship. And that voice is so important and is so in the forefront in poetry. And I also really agree with what Eric said that often when we're first introduced to poetry, it's maybe from a different era, maybe language that isn't so common anymore. So maybe Shakespeare, the Victorians, but there are so many people writing poetry today that are speaking to their experiences right now. So uh, Jose Olivares, whose new book Promises of Gold is really good. He was in Chicago until recently. Ellen Bass is a poet I know who writes movingly about her family. And there's so many different people writing about their experiences. And I think really in poetry, because there's so much focus on the language, it becomes, that voice becomes so distinctive. And that's Hmm. so, that's what's so beautiful about it. You feel like you're, you're almost like you're seeing a mind at work Hmm. and that's really cool for me. So I love what Eric is talking about, and I would echo him for people who have not read a lot of poetry, spend time with it, let it become a part of you, and see what you yourself are drawn to, because there are so many people writing poetry in so many different styles out there. Wow, that's good. 
Yeah, I just want to, um, I, I, you can't see this because this is an audio medium, but I put my thumbs up when you mentioned Jose Oliver's. I love that book. Um, mm-hmm. It's so good. Promises of Golden. Um, I would say too, like, I really think uh, resonating with what, with what Amy's saying, like my own experience has been a little, now I read some of everything kind of across eras when it comes to poetry, but I really did start a lot closer to the present and then kind of began to work my way backwards. So, I mean, the poets that really hooked me were kind of, I guess, can maybe call them kind of like painters, like mid-century masters, um, you know, from last century, like the Mary Oliver, Olivers of yeah. the world, um, Franz Wright, um, people like that. And then I started working my way back to where, okay, yes, now I can read a Rilke book or Gerard Manley Hopkins and get something out of it. But I don't think if that had been my introduction, I don't know how long it lasted. And so I think starting today, kind of moving through maybe the late 20th century, and then all of a sudden, as those rhythms and that language and that voice begins to unlock for you, then there's just kind of this entire world of poetry that that's open to you and you don't really have to feel restricted by it. Um, so I think, yeah. And I think again, Drew Jackson, I mean, I think about people, Jose Oliveras is a great um, person to mention. I mean, there are so many modern poets. I think about, um, gosh, like Hanif Abdurabkib, um, you know, Tracy K. Smith, um, you know, Ada Lamone, all these people who are just writing so beautifully, Maggie Smith, um, that you immediately see the emotional connection to your circumstance and, and to your moment. Um, and then I think you just, you just kind of almost project it backwards. Then you begin to see that emotional connection, that timeless emotional connection in, in the work of poets who are living, you know, a hundred, 200 years ago, somewhere you've never been. So, wow. All right. I yield. I will, uh, <laughs> I will start to read poetry. <laughs> it's been a goal of mine for years now. I just never, never cracked it. But, and, and if Chris Smith, uh, our founding editor were on the call, he would be cheering and fist pumping right now. Cause he's a big proponent of reading of, especially the point you made earlier, Eric, of, of poetry, almost forcing you to slow, slow down your reading. Um, you know, I'm struck by, uh, I was just thinking about this as, as you were, I love epic fantasy work. Um, and, uh, I reread Lord of the Rings near the beginning of the pandemic. And um, typically, I don't know if either of you read Lord of the Rings or, or Tolkien in general, but uh, everyone complains about the songs, you know, <laughs> uh, how they they like interrupt the action and the plot or whatever. And I actually found, and maybe it could have been the, the stage of the pandemic we were in and just all the disorientation around that time. But I actually found myself really drawn to those stretches in that, in that writing for the first time. I've read that, I've read that work so many times and, uh, but, but yeah, for some reason in that phase, the songs and the poetry, effectively the poetry in that, in, in Lord of the Rings really grabbed me in a new way. And so I'm, I'm being reminded of that experience and wondering if that might be maybe my gateway uh, and my, my first experience of experiencing poetry in that, in that way, in that posture you're talking about. Um, it does seem like a beautiful thing. And it seems like it's a, it's a specific style of writing that can enter at a certain angle, enter, enter your life and your experience at a certain angle that others can't, or at least aren't as equipped to. Um, I also want to say, I don't want to like, I don't want anyone listening or, or for you, Joel, to feel like yeah, yeah. Well, if I haven't read poetry, like sure. feel like, like browbeaten into it. Like I think, yeah. I think it's just one of those things, like occasionally I'll run into someone who says like, I don't really like music. And I think saying like, I don't read poetry is kind of the same thing. It's mm-hmm. like, you just haven't found the thing that's there for you. Like Amy said, there, there's there's something somewhere for everybody. There's a voice somewhere that's going to meet you where you are. And I think it just takes time. And I, I think, um, I, I just don't want anyone to feel guilty. Sure. I think going slow and, and just seeking out different voices and finding the thing that fits you is, uh, it, it takes time and it's intentional, but if that's something you're willing to do, I think it'll be rewarding. So. That's great. Yeah, we're, we're big on not, not, 
uh, pressuring or shaming people to reading <laughs> reading certain types of books at ERV. So that's a good thing to, to name. Um, but I'm glad we lingered on that topic for a bit because that's that's a really helpful thing to discuss uh, and very apropos to a book like Drew Jackson's, which sounds like it's very good. Um, and you said you wouldn't that you feel like that would be a good entry point for people. It sounded like you said that earlier. Absolutely. Yeah. Again, I think the, you know, I would never describe the language as as simple, but certainly it's in a modern vernacular. And so there's no real barriers to entry in that regard. Um, And I Mm -hmm. think, again, Drew is interacting with with the Bible. He's interacting with, you know, modern figures that people are going to know. And so I think um, just taking some time to work through, and the poems are usually relatively short. So I, I think it really is like a, a nice entry point, but it's going to be, it won't feel like a, it won't feel like you're covering the basics when you're done. You'll feel really mm. enriched by it. Sounds great. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Appreciate all those thoughts. Um, well, I think uh, I think we'll move to what we've been reading at this point. Uh, spend a few minutes to kind of round out our conversation on that. So at this point, this is free for all. Anything you've been reading, anything you'd like to highlight can be any genre, any any age, doesn't matter. Um, I think, Amy, I'll come back to you first. Uh, do you want to throw maybe two or three titles out there that are as we say, on our nightstands, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, I started Jenny O'Dell's book, Saving Time, and I really like it. I had loved her book, How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. And mm-hmm. one of the things that's funny about O'Dell's work is that the titles make them sound like they're sort of productivity or self-help books. But when you get into them, she's actually really challenging that conception of time, that sense that mm we're always under pressure. We're always looking at our to-do list. We're always trying to sort of monetize everything that we're doing for social media. And so she's really interested in what's going on in the natural world. So at the beginning of Saving Time, she talks about how strange time became in the pandemic and watching moss spores grow in a planter in her kitchen. And so she's looking at the natural world. She's looking at geological timescales and she's comparing what's happening with tectonic plates to then she's bringing in, you know, travel influencers on Instagram. And she's really juxtaposing some of the wildness of our modern experience with different ways to exist in time. So hmm. that feels really needed to me right now. Um, yeah. And I also feel like it's time for me to go back to some Wendell Berry. So maybe. What are people for? I think is next up for the summer. On my nonfiction side, podcast side, I've really been trying to learn a lot about AI and accelerating technology just to understand what it's going to mean for us as human beings. And one of the things, of the many things that concern me is that perhaps we will face this pressure for humans to be more like computers rather than computers assisting humans in what we want to do. And so I'm really interested in people who are deliberately thinking about what are other ways to be in the world? What are other ways to be in time? What are ways to not just unthinkingly go forward um, with some of the pressures that we're facing? And so those are a couple of things that I'm really interested in right now. Are you reading a particular work or listening to a particular podcast on the topic of AI, robotics, all that stuff right now? Or are you just a general, more of a general theme? So Ezra Klein at the New York Times has spent mm-hmm. a lot of time on this. And so I've been interested in it because he brings in not only people who are immersed in technology, but also philosophers to talk about it. And I, I think yeah. that balance is really needed. So that's one place that I've gone for it. 
but I, I've been trying to get a range of perspectives. So people who are working on the technology and really like it, and also people who know about it and are very concerned about it, just trying to get as many different viewpoints as mm. I can. I'm going to actually insert a title that I'm reading right now. I was going to wait, but it's very, very relevant. Um, so I just started this new, it's very new book by an author I was not familiar with before named Joseph Minich, I think is how you pronounce it. Um, it's called Bulwarks of Unbelief, and it's from Lexham Press. I've been really impacted by the cultural theory and philosophy of Charles Taylor, a secular age work. And so this book, Bulwarks of Unbelief, is in many ways building off of Taylor's work with secularism and secularity. But the reason that it's popping in my head right now specifically is because he has, uh, Minich has a lot to say about what he calls our technoculture. Um, and so he talks a lot, of, and I am just, I'm about halfway through the book and I, I honestly, I'm like adoring this book. It's one of my favorite books I've read this year so far. And uh, he he's talking and commenting on how, uh, and it's not a shallow, like here's how technology is bad, argument at all. It's more of a, let's like try to think really carefully about how technology has influenced the ways that humans even have their posture in the world. Like how is our posture towards materiality and creation and anthropology and all, how has that posture shifted decisively because of the advent of technology? And let's like, let's slow down and think about it. And of course his argument has a lot more to do with the rise of, um, uh, divine absence and atheism and all that stuff that's that's in his view seems to be entangled with all this stuff but but the role of technology is significant and he's pulling deeply on people like Jacques Ellul um to to and he, he he's in conversation with Marx which I know is people have strong feelings about that but he I think he works really really well with Marx's philosophy so anyways I I would just for those who are interested in this topic at more of the uh, cultural theory philosophy level man, I'm really loving the way that Minich is, is approaching it. So that's, I would throw that title out there. Bulwarks of Unbelief is what it's called. That sounds really interesting. And I think if you're into that, I think you would like Jenny O'Dell's book, Saving Time as well, because it's dealing with a lot of similar issues. Awesome. Yeah. I, I had not been familiar with that before. So I'm going to definitely look that up after this call. There's one problem, these hosting and being involved in this <laughs> podcast website, my, my, I've had to like, fragment my Amazon wish lists into like six or seven categories because I just can't keep up with all the stuff I want to read. But that one's definitely going to go on there. Yeah. Um, it's like the more you read, the longer your wish list gets. Yeah. Yes. 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 Oh man. Um but it's a good it's a good thing. Uh thank you for those. Um Eric, what about you? What are you reading right now? Yeah. So I wanted to mention um a pair of novels. One I'm currently in the middle of and then one I just finished, but I've been thinking about it so much. Oh, cool. <laughs> I feel like I had to say it. Um the one I just finished and I've been thinking about uh is a little bit older. It's um The Town in the City by Jack Kerouac. Um it's actually uh I mistakenly said recently that it was the first novel he ever wrote. It's not. It's the first novel he ever had published. Um there were some other earlier unpublished works that that weren't published until after his death, but um, first novel Kerouac had published, and I've been on this Kerouac kick for the last couple of years. And um, this book is essentially, it's just a coming of age novel. It's set in mm. Massachusetts and it covers um, right around World War II, the war ends up playing a factor in it, um, covers just the, the kind of the, the, the timeline of this larger family. I think they have like five or six kids. The dad is kind of a big man around town in this small town. And I, what I love about it is it's one of the most beautiful, like just family novels I've ever read. Um, hmm. uh, you know, each character, of course, like all the rest of us is, is very flawed and has their own kind of particular uh, issues, but they all have really big hearts and you see them kind of evolve over the course of the book. 
But the other cool thing is as someone who's been again on this kind of uh, Kerouac jag, this this book is far more traditional than most of the things that people oh, okay. associate with him. So, you know, if you love on the road or, or those kinds of things, which I, I like his, you know, more popular stuff. Um, this is a far more kind of formally conventional novel, hmm. but as you get to the last few chapters, you kind of see, it's almost like you see what's coming. You know, he kind of leans into some things with the language um, that you kind of go, oh, okay, I know where this is headed. This is the stepping into that. Um, and so I think it's actually a really great book for people who either love Kerouac and haven't read it, or if you actually really don't like Kerouac at all, <laughs> I think it's like one book of his that kind of like complicates your opinion of him um, mm-hmm. because it is, um, it's beautiful, but it's so, you know, kind of traditional in its structure as it begins. Um, so that's one I just, I just keep thinking about it because there's all these wonderful conversations in it between the father and his kids um, there's just beautiful writing about nature. I mean, he writes about rain in this book that like in a way that I'm like, I just want to read you 50 pages on rain. Like, this, <laughs> um, so anyway, that's been just something that's been in the back of my mind since I finished it. Um, and then the other that I'm in the middle of now is the newest, uh, Isabel Allen Bay novel, um, hmm. called the knows my name. And as we were kind of talking earlier about like, you know, blind spots or things we haven't read. I have never read any of her work, actually. Um, I picked up a very uh, affectionately tattered paperback copy of The House of the Spirits recently in a neighborhood library, but I hadn't started it yet. Um, and then saw that she had a new one out and thought I would just go ahead and read it. And it's it's really wonderful. Um, she's basically cross-cutting two stories throughout the novel. One is that of, a, it's, it's all about displaced children. Um, okay. The first story is that of a young Jewish boy in Vienna in the 1930s, whose parents are both lost to the Holocaust. And he's sent to live with a family in England. And then just about how that experience changes the the course of his life. And then the other really reaches into kind of our modern situation with immigration in the United States. It's about a a young, um, I think Mexican girl, if if I'm remembering right, who's separated from her mother. um, And really, I mean, really harkens back to everything that we saw coming across, you know, our TV screens in like 2018, 2019 about, you know, kids in detention centers and, and just kind of the, the tragedy and, and, you know, kind of inhumanity of that. Um, but Alan Day is kind of, again, cross-cutting those two stories to kind of help us get a sense of what it would be like to be displaced from your family. Um, mm. Writing is really compelling. It, the, the plot moves along at a really nice pace, um, but it's just, it's just really soulful writing. And I know it's, it's really silly. I feel like I'm starting with like, you know, listening to the Beatles by listening to the newest, you know, Paul McCartney album or something <laughs> with Alan Day, but like, of course I'm going to read backwards now, but um, yeah. it's, it's just a really good book. And I think, I think it's one that if you want like a, a little bit weightier summer novel, but one that's still a page turner, um, mm. I would really definitely throw that out there. That's a great recommendation. I, I love, I read a lot of fiction and I have not read Alan Day either. So I'm glad that I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, let me throw two more titles in the mix uh, just to round out our conversation. Um, I just started, I'm, I'm a big fan an unabashed fan of Andrew Root. I've talked about him on the podcast before I've reviewed at least a couple of his books for the website. And, um, if you're familiar with him, he does a lot of work with Charles Taylor's philosophy, but applying it to kind of modern ecclesiology and like how, how does the church function in our secular age? And, uh, he just co-wrote this new title. I'm going to hold it up, even though our listeners won't be able to see it. Um, it's called When Church Stops Working. Uh, and he co-wrote it with a guy named Blair Bertrand, who I was not familiar with before. But uh, so far, it seems it seems like it's his 
offer to the people who appreciate his work, but wish it was less heady and cerebral and more approachable and practical. Uh, so he's really tackling. And I actually thought of this too, uh, Amy, as you were talking earlier about things like our cultural relationship with time and productivity and acceleration and all of that stuff. Uh, he's really, really, in my view, he's one of the most helpful writers writing from an explicitly theological angle on those topics for the church. Um, so, and I, I'm a pastor and I know some of our listeners are either ministry leaders or, or pastors or whatever. So, um, so from what I've read so far, I would definitely recommend when church stops working this brand new book from uh, Andrew Root and Blair Bertrand. If you want to, if you want to like read some distilled, okay, how can these like, cultural theory ideas actually play out in a practical sense in the local congregation and how can we push back on some like key cultural trends that may not be the most you know healthy or helpful things for the church to think about in terms of productivity and innovation and all that stuff um would definitely recommend it um and then the last thing another fiction recommendation um i'm also uh the the representative for sci-fi and fantasy uh, work. So uh, I'm going to mention the, the most recent one I just finished, um, which is by a guy named Tad Williams. Um, I don't know if either of you or read any of this genre of, of writing or not, but uh, Tad Williams is um, someone I've more recently discovered. He's a little bit of an unsung, in my view, unsung hero in this, in this genre, but he actually inspired people like Patrick Rothfuss and George Martin uh, to do their epic works and, and a, a bunch of like Brandon Sanderson. Also a lot of these like who's who and like current popular fantasy. We'll talk about how Tad Williams work was groundbreaking for them. Well, before I wax too long about it, I'll just say Tad Williams wrote his kind of fantasy masterwork in the late eighties, early nineties. And he's revisited that world with a new series of four books um, the series is called The Last King of Austin Art, and the third one, which I just finished, is called Into the Narrow Dark, um, and it is amazing. It is so good. Uh, if you like, you know, minimum 500-page length books that make up epic series of, you know, worlds and characters and races and all that stuff, then this is some of the best stuff. I absolutely adore Tad Williams' writing. I think he's one of these sentence for sentence best writers in, in kind of current fantasy. Um, and so I, I'm like dying for the. And also, he importantly, without naming any names, he importantly actually finishes his stories. Uh, so he's good at actually following through on his plots and publishing books. And so the last book of this series will be coming out this year. I couldn't be more excited to get it as soon as it's ready. Um, I believe it's going to be called The Navigator's Children. So anyways, I just want to throw out a shameless uh, you know, plug for some, some fantasy by Tad Williams. It's great stuff. Would highly recommend it to any listeners who are interested in that genre. Um, that sounds really interesting. Um, I'm curious about what is it like for a writer to revisit a world that they had first explored yeah. some time ago? How have the books changed since then? Oh my gosh. Oh, wow. We're tapping on a rich vein here. I'm going to try to limit my reaction. Uh, this is where I gush and get super nerdy. But um, so my my view on that, and, and this, this is a very fascinating case of exactly what you're talking about, because uh, like all genres, genres shift and change with cultural trends. And you can kind of, one thing I love about fantasy is that in sci-fi too, it can be an interesting uh, reflection on ourselves uh, of like some of the most pressing things that are pressing, whether it's like questions of anthropology and all that stuff, like they get explored in fascinating ways in fantasy and sci-fi. So all that to say, um, Tad Williams, in my view, paved the way for the darker, more geopolitically nuanced and complicated, morally gray characterizations and, 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 and yeah, geopolitics and stuff that is now, now the currency of, obviously, if anyone's watched Game of Thrones, I mean, that's what that story is. It's like complicated, gray, nuance, all of that. Whereas you, I love Lord of the Rings. I talked about Lord of the Rings earlier. Lord of the Rings could not be 
any farther from nuance when moral nuance, you know, like, you know, who is good and, and all of that. But, uh, but anyways, all that to say, Tad Williams, when he was writing in the late eighties, early nineties, he arguably is the one who shifted the genre towards allowing some space for some of those moral complications. Um, and, uh, and that's, I think why a lot of these writers cite him as someone who kind of like showed them that they could do something new with the genre. So what's fascinating is now, you know, 20, 30 years later, he's revisited that original world that kind of charted this new ground. And he's now, in my view, revisiting it with all this stuff that's happened in the past couple of decades in that genre in mind. And so, for example, these, and I, I will stop myself before I go too long. Um, a lot of people may have just turned the podcast off at this point. Uh, but uh, in in this series of these four books, The Last King of Austin Ard, it's the first time where we get chapters from the viewpoint of the quote unquote bad guys, uh, which wasn't the case in the earlier books in the, in the 80s and 90s when he was writing. And so it's almost as though he's kind of recapitulating his earlier work with everything that's you know, been learned and, and how the genre has grown and matured and, and shifted. And now, but he's keeping a lot of what made the earlier work so great. And it's the same characters as well that have grown and matured in that world as well. So um, yeah, I just, I, as you can tell, I adore it. I love it. Um, and so there's something about um, sinking into a world like that, that it's, it's obviously so fictional and fantasy, but at the same time pulls on these things that you can relate to and these moral questions of our age that get teased out in, in unsurprising ways um, in a completely made up world. So I find it to just be a wonderful outlet for creativity and imagination and, and even some surprisingly like deep reflection. The best fantasy writers are the ones who can kind of smuggle that stuff in, um, in my view. So so yeah, that's, that, that's my response to that question. I appreciate you asking yeah. that because I obviously have thoughts. Um, but uh, but yeah, so that's Into the Narrow Dark. That's the most recent one. I, I would highly recommend Tad Williams' work in general uh, for those who are interested in kind of dipping their toe into that world. Um, all right. Well, I think that's a good place for us to wrap our conversation. Um, we covered a lot of ground here, a lot of different styles, a lot of different genres. Um, it's really, really fun to talk to you both. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. If you enjoyed this conversation and you would like to learn more, please visit our website, anglewoodreview.org, where you'll find plenty of book reviews, reading lists, and author interviews. And of course, you can subscribe to this podcast through your favorite podcast provider and share it with your friends. Thank you again for listening. Here's to energizing reading today. <laughs>